Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The Raven is released weekly and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want ad-free listening and early access to next week's episode, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to The Raven, a production of Tenderfoot TV in association with Odyssey. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast. This podcast also contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. All right, so going to get the quick Greg Street background, who you are, where you're from, for um, somebody that doesn't know anything about you. Thank you, hit Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Greg Street, I do radio here in Atlanta, V103. Oh, yo, straight up and down on your FM diddow. Street should be pulling in right near down. Uh, it's 6 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock, it's time for Street to rock. Been doing radio for a minute, making music. Today was a good day. Greg Street featuring Nappy Roots. Probably one of the most commercial songs you've heard on TV and movies and commercials. All right. So the crux of what we're trying to get after. For somebody who doesn't know the Atlanta club scene, would just love to hear the genesis from the mid-90s to now. The club scene was amazing when I got here. Close to open all night. You go to some clubs, then you leave at 4 or 5 in the morning, go to another club, and leave that club when the sun is coming up. You know, Jodeci was crazy, and Mary J. Blige with Criss Cross, and The Brat, and Escape, Outkast, of course, Goody Mob. Atlanta was going crazy. From 95 to 2000, the club scene was popping. How did that change in 2000? Man, the, um, the incident, was it Super Bowl weekend? was a reason, I think, for politics and concerned citizens to try to, to put a, a stop on a lot of the activity that was going on in the clubs. I mean, you got to think, Ray Lewis is an NFL superstar. So, I mean, it was all over the news. In many cases, an area's economy depends on its reputation, and many people here in Buckhead fear that as this national story drags on, so will Buckhead's reputation as the site of two murder cases in the past month. The last one, of course, involving NFL star Ray Lewis. There are a lot of big names that get tied to the drama. And as long as you can tie big names to the drama, you can get a lot of attention. I mean, whose name was mentioned the most, Ray or the other guys in the car? 
Ray. Yeah. It happens in every situation. Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Episode 3, Can't Say. Eric, we good? Keep talking, keep talking. Keep talking. (laughs) Test, test, test. Can I think? Um, Let's start off with just your bio and and jump off from there. All right. I was fortunate to have what I thought was an outstanding career with the department, was on a lot of specialty units that got started. I was an original Red Dog member, original DUI task force, eventually made investigator and worked my way to homicide, which was a goal in my life, and spent my time there and had some very interesting, I would say, time and landed probably one of the higher profile cases that Atlanta's had. Ken Allen, the lead detective in this case, spent months ignoring me. Then one day he returned a message and said that he was willing to talk. Alan never wanted to revisit this story. It was a low point in his life and career. But his daughter, a huge fan of true crime podcasts, convinced him to sit down with us. Alan knows more about the investigation than anyone. He was there from the beginning, the first detective on the scene, and he looked every witness in the eye and heard their stories firsthand. I'm eager for him to walk me through his investigation and tell me what he believes and why. Here's Alan recalling the morning after the Super Bowl. It was a cold, cold winter day. I just happened to be up and I was working morning watch homicide and the call came in and the crime scene, it was very, very hectic. You had hundreds of footprints throughout it. You've got broken glass. You've got, in essence, mayhem that's roped off. Then you get a notification that there's a limousine that had gone further down in Buckhead and was pulled off into a parking lot. And it had bullet holes in it and it had a flat tire. And it just so happened that that limousine also had a placard that was Baltimore Ravens on the dashboard. Alan tells me that he was the only investigator working homicide the night after the Super Bowl, and that his crime scene techs were junior, ill-equipped to handle such a chaotic scene. After securing the site around Lawler and Baker's bodies, Alan rushed to the hotel parking lot to meet the limo driver, Dwayne Fassett. The, the driver, Dwayne Fassett, the limo driver, was actually at the hotel trying to get the tire changed for the limo. It was interesting in talking with him to get started with because he was very, very nervous. And obviously, you've got a limo that has bullet holes and you've been involved in a situation as such. But he was extremely nervous and you know, a little bit hesitant when we first started talking to him about who was in the limo, who was involved, those type of things. It took a, a little while to bring that through and he was taken to the homicide office and This was a long, long process. The limo driver, Dwayne Fassett, was petrified. Two men were killed in front of his eyes, 
and he escaped the scene through a flurry of bullets, one of which punctured his front passenger side tire. Procuring Facet was an early win for Allen's investigation, but after getting a statement, something strange happened. Everyone else who was in the limo that night became almost impossible to reach. When we were finding people and finally get some type of contact with them, we would set up an interview, and by the time that we went there spending our money and time, they were lawyering up. And then later, there was some evidence that pointed to the fact that they were all given throwaway cell phones and that they had numbers that were installed within there. And their direction was simple. If we contacted them for an interview, call an attorney. I asked Alan where he believed the cell phones came from and was shocked by his answer. There's people in a limousine that received cell phones from some entity. In looking into it and what we had believed, it appeared to have been the Baltimore Ravens. Again, tying that down, it never was really concrete or found as to who provided those cell phones. Alan goes on to explain that a group of men worked ahead of the police to equip witnesses with burner phones inexpensive, prepaid phones that are almost impossible for authorities to track. Were these men connected to Lewis's employer, the Baltimore Ravens? Allen's not sure. He was focused on solving his case, the one attracting national media attention. He didn't have time to unmask the identities of the burner phone supplying mystery men. But Allen tells me that in his mind, the breadcrumbs weren't hard to follow. I would certainly think that it was somebody connected with Ray. I'm going to assume that after the arrest that you had Baltimore owners getting involved and at this point is we've got to protect our asset. Whether they had any direct connect or anything of orchestrating or handing out the cell phones, I don't know. I'm sure that they were involved with witnesses, that they were direct on what they were to give us or what steps they would take to lawyer up so that they would not have to answer any questions. I mean, that's part of the reason that we moved the investigation completely out of the district attorney's office was because of information being leaked out of our homicide office. And when we would identify somebody and set up an interview, a couple of different times we arrived to do the interview and NFL Securities was there before us. The bottom line was that there's a lot of interference that was being run within my own unit. The investigators in homicide that were supposed my coworkers saying that they felt that they should have been on the case and not me. I think that there was an effort that they were hoping that if I was misled enough that they would get an opportunity to be moved to the case. I believe that was the intent behind it. I asked how Allen was sure that his department was leaking information and why he was convinced that the leaks were going to the men who he describes as NFL securities. He says that to confirm his hunch, he laid a trap. As a Raven listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every case I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. You never know what's out there, which is why Simply Safe can help you establish a sense of control. I love Simply Safe because it is simple. The setup is fast and easy, and it protects your whole home. Sensors to detect break-ins, 
fires, floods, and more. Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. There are no contracts and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind. I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/raven. That's simplysafe.com/raven. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Somebody, at least one person, potentially more, is talking with NFL security, keeping them abreast of what's going on. Yes. I put within a supplement some information of what we thought we had found out it went to the Atlanta homicide that was sent in while I was out of town, purposely to see what was happening and had people in surveillance to watch. And sure enough, the NFL security showed up. Detective Allen's trap was simple. He created a fake witness and sent his team a supplement, an internal police report used for sharing updates and information. The witness in the supplement was not real, but the location was. Allen's team waited outside the location, and sure enough, the men who he identified as NFL securities arrived. There was no way these men could have known about the location unless they received the information directly from the Atlanta Homicide Department. Allen now knew the truth. His department had a leak. So they tipped their hand by following up on this false lead. How did that make you feel? Betrayed. It wasn't anything that was major, but it was only for the Atlanta homicide unit. And how did you confirm that this was NFL security and not two random guys? Because we had already seen NFL securities. That, I mean, we already knew who these particular people were from a, a previous interview that they had showed up and one of the people said, well, it was, it was NFL security. You know, we, we never discussed names. I never cared to know names, never cared to know background. I just knew that this was a hurdle that I was going to have to overcome and have to try to stay 
ahead of instead of being behind because it seemed that we were behind right now. To counter the opposition and attempt to stay ahead, Allen raced to learn everything he could about the suspects, Reginald Oakley, Joseph Sweeting, and of course, Ray Lewis. Reginald Oakley's rap sheet is over 26 pages long. Charges include cashing fake checks, reckless driving, assault, identity theft, and resisting arrest. In 1989, Oakley was arraigned on assault with a deadly weapon and intent to kill charges in North Carolina. The charges were later dismissed by the DA. Joseph Sweeting's rap sheet isn't quite as long as Oakley's, but it's close, and he was convicted of more serious charges, including grand theft. The connection that we found with Joseph Sweeting and Ray Lewis, Ray was a patron of strip clubs that Sweeting and, and people had their hands on. We also tied that uh, Sweeting was involved with a drug gang that we know at the time as Miami Boys, that he was one of the enforcers for that particular drug unit. The Miami Boys was a gang known for selling crack cocaine in the southeastern United States. They were organized and violent, with multiple reports noting their proclivity to brandish big guns, Uzis, AR-15s, and AK-47s. I don't even know if Ray really knew Sweeting's background or the fact of how dangerous of a person people considered Sweeting. The homicide detectives in Miami had 10 or 11 different homicides that they felt that Sweeting might have played a hand in. His name was very familiar when it came up to them. He was charged and was the, the first person that ever went to federal prison for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. You know, when you take a look at the injuries that occurred to the two victims, it's very classic shank fighting things that you learn in prison. Sweeting spent four years in prison. According to Allen's intel, Sweeting learned to fight with shanks while in jail. Shanks are small, razor-like objects, common in prison fighting. Shaved down plastic toothbrushes, sharpened metal, splintered wood. Allen suggests that a punch blade is a natural choice for someone adept at fighting with shanks. The evidence of the physical injuries are very dictating. We had no defensive wounds and stabs direct to heart and kidneys. That is a skilled trade that is taught in federal prison. It's shank fighting. Now, can you learn it other places and can other people be involved in it? Yes. But when you take a look at what we had as far as suspects and background, it starts to really narrow. The victim's wounds in Joseph Sweeting's history led Allen to believe that the former Miami Boys enforcer likely killed both victims. When it comes to Ray Lewis's involvement, Allen has more questions than answers. I think Ray Lewis was involved in the fight. But was he attacked first or not? We don't know. Is it, would he have told us that Richard Lawler, that he was standing there and telling, you know, you guys don't want to do this or go on about your own business, and Richard Lawler punched him first, and at that point in time, Ray's anger hit to the level on it, and then he took over what Ray Lewis knows, and that is crush and destroy? To me, I don't think Ray Lewis knew that Richard Lawler got stabbed. I think afterwards, panic set in, and that the cover-up took place. 
What's interesting to me is when you go through the investigation and then you look at Ray's history that we found out down in Miami, a couple of, of different confrontations that he got into, he took his shirt off. So at this one, he took the jacket off. The cream-colored suit worn by Ray Lewis the night of the murders infamously disappeared. His attorney claimed years later that Lewis's suit was at the cleaners. It was below freezing in the morning hours after the Super Bowl, and Allen tells me that for him, Lewis taking off his jacket mirrored his previous fights in Miami and was a clear indicator that the linebacker was ready to brawl. That's when you knew Ray was going to get into a fight. There's never been any evidence that Ray would have had a weapon or ever used a weapon or threatened to use a weapon in any of the previous encounters. Ray Lewis wasn't going to stab anybody. And I really don't think that he told Sweeting to stab Richard Holler. I think Sweeting did it on his own accord. I think that the likelihood is Jacinth Baker initiated the conflict in hitting Reginald Oakley. Um, Richard Lawler, I think Ray Lewis grabbed onto him and, you know, in, in my opinion, probably ran him about 20 yards into a tree. And once he probably rammed him into that tree, I don't know there was much fight left. But when you look at, the, again, the fact that the stab wounds have no defensive, the victims really didn't know what was happening at the time and that they were being stabbed. And I think they were very direct and very well targeted, and it ended up in their deaths. Allen talked to every key witness and believes that Lewis grabbed Richard Lawler, drove him back into a tree, and that it's unlikely that Lewis knew that anyone in his entourage would use a knife in the fight. At the beginning of Allen's investigation, witnesses were talking, not all, but some. But as the trial approached, witness after witness, according to Allen, changed their story. What made their stories change? Allen can't say for sure, but he notes that every time a witness altered details, it benefited Ray Lewis's defense. Money speaks. And there are very limited resources that public entities have to spend on these type of cases. And you have to be good from the beginning and you have to treat things fairly from the beginning because if you lean in opposite direction, you can easily get outdone. And I think we got outdone on this particular case on several different levels from the attorneys that were brought in, the people that were paid, the money that was involved in this, the whole course of what their resources were compared to ours. Ken Allen's dream job was to become a homicide detective. After his experience investigating the Super Bowl murders, less than a year after earning his promotion to detective, he transferred to a different unit. For Allen, it wasn't that the bad guys won. It was that some of the bad guys were on his team. I did not feel that that unit, which I spent 12 years to get to, getting there, working with teams that I did in, in Miami and that I did in Baltimore, and realizing that that's not what we have here, it wasn't for me. I constantly strive and impact the idea of we are a team. Somebody calls for help, you have to be there. Somebody calls out, you've got to pick up. 
because it's a team effort. It's the only way that we can be in law enforcement successful completely as a police department. You have to, to work together. And I think that's one of the unfortunate problems of the Atlanta Police Department right now is we work separately. I talked with the major at the time on it about the other units that I saw, the success that they have, how they operate, and it was pushed aside. And so I went my own path. I, I went ahead and said, it's not for me, I'm gonna take a different path, and I did. Alan and I continued talking after the interview. I asked him what I should look into next. When you guys have time, look into the witnesses. And I think there's other bits of information and things that, that might draw a different light if you dig into it. The restaurant owner's from Cleveland. I think that you probably should look at that. The restaurant owners from Cleveland, John and Bruno De Siena, were passionate Cleveland Browns fans who were also partying in Buckhead the night of the murders. They're down for the Super Bowl and are big, big football fans and happen to be outside and see the altercation. That's Ray Lewis. And did they ever talk with you? Yeah, yeah. We, from the original to where the next course of the interview goes when we're at the restaurant, the story changes. So you talked to them down here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And they told you that Ray Lewis was involved in the skirmish. Great. The DC and her brothers were leaving a club with a friend they made that weekend named Chester Anderson. Anderson later testified that he heard John DC in a comment, Ray's kicking someone's ass as they watched the brawl unfold. Anderson also said that he saw Lewis kick someone on the ground. But there was an issue with Anderson's testimony. He was a con man. Anderson's specialty was identity theft. And that weekend, Anderson was posing as former NFL players to get into parties. Ray Lewis's attorney eviscerated Anderson on the stand, emphasizing over and over again that the jury could not in good conscience believe a professional liar. You're gonna find out that Mr. Anderson is a professional imposter. You'll find out he goes by different names. It'll be interesting to see what name Mr. Anderson uses when he comes here. But we'll ask him about his identities. Anderson's rebuttal was that with his ruse now public, he would be hard pressed to execute any future cons. He maintained that silence was his best option, but that he felt compelled to take the stand for the victims and the victims' families. So what about the DCNA brothers, the ones with Anderson that night? What did they see? What did they originally tell Alan? Did they say that any details about Ray Lewis punching, fighting, no. kicking? No, they just... No, they, they said it was in, he was involved in the fight. That was their eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. And then you go up to Cleveland and the story is completely different. That's one of the run-ins with NFL securities. We show up to do an interview with the restaurant owners and we're told, oh, it's going to be a little while. Why don't you have lunch? Sit down and relax. And when we finish and we're finally called that, okay, things are going on, the people that walk out are NFL securities before us. Story changes as to whether or not it was really Ray. I found it suspicious because football fan knows it's Ray Lewis, unsure of exactly who it is later in this testimony in the court. According to Allen, Bruno's story, specifically in relation to the actions of Ray Lewis, changed over the course of his investigation and Allen has a theory on why that happened. If you're familiar with NFL history, you know that Art Modell, the former Ravens owner, 
originally owned the Cleveland Browns. In 1995, Modell attempted what is now remembered as the move, where he announced his intention to relocate the Browns franchise from Cleveland to Baltimore. Things quickly got ugly, which prompted the NFL to step in and broker a deal. The league allowed Modell to take the players on the Browns roster and create a new team in Baltimore, the Ravens, and then promised Cleveland that they could relaunch the Browns as an expansion team in 1999. Why is this important? Bruno Di Siena, the Cleveland restaurateur mentioned by Detective Allen, was the former executive chef at the Cleveland Browns training facility, meaning that up until 1996, Art Modell was Bruno Di Siena's boss. Detective Allen claims that Bruno told him hours after the melee that Ray Lewis, a player Bruno knew well as a passionate NFL fan, was involved in the fight. Later in court, Bruno did not testify that Lewis was involved. What caused Bruno's story to change? I plan to ask him. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Calvin? Yes. How are you? Good. Can you confirm the, uh, where it's taking us? West 41st Street, Cleveland. Bruno's Restaurant? Correct. For yeah, something like that. West side of Cleveland. West side. It's gloomy and overcast on the drive to West Cleveland. The Uber carves through a residential neighborhood and drops me off in front of Bruno's Ristorante, a small brick building surrounded by homes. It's a big Italian neighborhood? Kind of. I never tried it, huh? No, but you never know. I kind of like Italian. Thank you. I was hoping to blend into the crowd, but I'm one of only five lunch patrons when I arrive. Table for one. Yep. I order the chicken parm and wait, hoping that Bruno will make an appearance. After finishing my meal and seeing no sign of him, I ask the waitress about the owner's schedule. Thank you, question for you. Bruno in today? 
He was. He's out catering. He's out catering. Does you know, so. guys mostly do catering? We do a lot of catering. Yeah. Alan advised me to look into a possible catering agreement with Bruno's restaurant and the Post Art Model Cleveland Browns. Bruno's waitress tells me that Bruno does a lot of catering work. Back in the day, she tells me they catered for the Browns all the time. Um, do you know when Bruno's going to be back? I'd love to talk to him. He's around today. Um, yeah, I'm not, not sure. Yeah, Sorry. he's in and out. He's in and out for yeah. the catering stuff. Okay, cool. I think I might have talked to one of you guys a couple months ago, but I'm doing a true crime podcast. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that you talked to me? Yeah. So, we had yeah. to look it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I would love to talk to him if he's around. Do you have, like, a number to me? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out, too. I sat at the bar for hours talking with Bruno's staff about their favorite true crime podcast. With dusk approaching, I was about ready to call it quits when a man walked behind the bar and greeted me. It was Bruno. Yes, sir. The Bruno? Huh? The Bruno? Depends. Hey, Bruno. Tim Livingston, great to meet you. Nice to meet you. These, these girls tell you what I'm here for? Uh, vaguely. So... here to see me. They've been hounding me. That's I've I been know. hounding you, man. Bruno didn't want to talk but I kept the conversation going as long as I could. I asked Bruno if he used to be the team chef at the Browns training facility. He confirmed that he was. I asked Bruno if he knew Art Model personally. He confirmed that he did. And then I asked Bruno what he witnessed that night in Atlanta. Podcast is trauma. We all as humans witness terrible things, how it affects our brains. Did this, do you guys ever talk about this? Do you guys talk about how it affected you emotionally? Did you ever revisit yeah, any of it? I just try to wipe it out. Just, you know, I don't talk about it, think about it, you know. Got it, okay. Um, I mean, I have a thousand questions I'd want to ask you about like the actual night and what you remember. I mean, were you guys, you guys been drinking and this was just like a random, you were just in the vicinity basically? Mm -hmm. So you, you didn't really see anything. I give Bruno an easy out. He didn't tell the jury anything substantive. I expect him to confirm that he didn't see much, that it was dark, late, and a long time ago. But instead, he gives me an all-knowing look, leans in, and whispers, can't say. No denial that he witnessed the crime, just two words that sum up this whole investigation. It's not that the witnesses don't know, it's that they can't, or won't, say. Who is out there that will talk? That's next time on The Raven. People say a lot of times, oh, we're going to treat it just like every other case. No, you're not. No, you're not. Bassett. I haven't talked to him in 15 years, and he was a very sad character, and he was very upset about this whole thing. I personally spoke with Mr. Fossett, after he was interviewed by the Atlanta Police Department, he broke it down to me in detail. The Raven is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Journeyman in association with Odyssey. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. I'm the executive producer on behalf of Journeyman. Alex Vespasted is our lead producer and editor on behalf of Tenderfoot Labs. Patty Cotter is our producer. Tracy Kaplan is our supervising producer. Paul Kusheri and Sydney Evans are associate producers. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Sound design, mixing, and mastering 
by Cooper Skinner and Dayton Cole. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Trial archival provided by Court TV. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, The Nord Group, Ninning Moran and the Moran family, Russell Raffner, Alyssa Gozarka, James Yu, and Todd Baines. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. For more podcasts like The Raven, search Tenderfoot TV on your favorite podcast app or visit tenderfoot.tv. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Raven. If you want to listen to next week's episode right now, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus for early access. Tenderfoot Plus is available on Apple Podcasts or tenderfootplus.com.